If you would be turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, um, as we continue our journey uh, as we head toward Easter, looking at uh, the passion of the Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. And just to make sure that we're kind of keeping uh, connected to the, the things that we've learned so far, one of the, the big pictures that Matthew uh, is, is revealing in his how he's telling the story of the passion is he's really weaving together three distinct stories. One is the story of Judas, which we'll see resolved here in chapter 27 this morning, which is the, the story of the, the one who really um, is not repentant in, in a way that is actually going to be life-changing. He's going to seek atonement anywhere but Jesus. And uh, that is a sobering tale to us. He does, in fact, have sorrow. He, he does, in fact, have a broken heart in some measure, but in the end, uh, he seeks atonement through his own death, and so that's just not possible. We also see uh, through Peter, who is representative of the other disciples, we see that, that, that we are weak and in need of a Savior. We see that as much as we would like to say, Lord, we will die for you, we can't even watch and pray in the most critical moment in all of redemptive history. Right? And we have proven that again and again. And so that really, for my hope, is that that's a lot of our story, is that we would recognize ourselves to be um, imperfect and broken, and yet the Lord chooses to use uh, those imperfect and broken people to build his church and to turn over to them the keys of the kingdom and to, and to bring forth his glory uh, into this world and continue to display it between the now and the not yet. And then there's the story of the faithful one, the one to whom we should cling because he is the crucified and he is the faithful one. He is the healer as we sang this morning. And you may be wondering, why did we sing kind of a country shuffle? Well, we were just in Alabama yesterday and so we just thought, you know, we'll stay with the flavor of the day. A bunch of us ate at Big Daddy's, bad decisions were made all around, uh, but we've come back in some pieces. And so... Um, and when I say bad decisions, I mean Jordan and I split an entire slab of ribs, which apparently they don't measure, and it's just as much animal flesh as they can fit onto a very large platter. And I had to go with 10 wings because I couldn't share a meal with another guy at a place in Alabama. So uh, anyway, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, pray for me uh, in my future. Um, but anyway, so, so we see that Jesus is the faithful one. He is the one that, that keeps the promises of God and imputes that or grants that to us, the unfaithful ones. Now, the real question is, though, do we have a heart broken unto repentance, recognizing the fullness of what Christ has done for us, or do we just have sorrow because we got caught? And therein is the real conundrum that passes through every man and woman's heart. And so that is the thing that I would hope we would meditate on this morning and not shy away from being confronted with in the power of the Holy Spirit that maybe there is something in your life for which you are sorrowful, but you are not in fact truly broken. And you are continuing to try to, in your own knowledge and strength, reconcile instead of surrendering in full and turning it over to Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So that is my prayer for us this morning is that we would recognize that tendency in ourselves and instead be ones who surrender to the crucified. All right, so I have a question for you as we look at Jesus being mocked and tried as both Savior and King. If, if you were a king or queen, uh, and you had set a bunch of people free, and you had done, you've done a whole lot for them, how would you expect them to treat you? Didn't I just describe every parent in the room at some level? Right? How would you expect people to treat you for whom you've done a whole lot to help make their lives better? You would expect a little bit of something in return, right? Some kind of thanks, uh, some sort of acknowledgement, some sort of recognition, am I right? We, 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 we long for that. Uh, when we do for others, we, we expect there to be something. And, and when there's not, how do we respond? Parents, come on, let's get a confession going. <laughs> I can't repeat that, but Bill, Bill made a noise, and I think it's accurate. Uh, uh, and so, so we, we become tyrannical, if we're honest, 
We become vindictive. We actually, if we're honest, we become vengeful. And we say, well, I'm not, I'm not gonna do anything for you anymore if that's the way you're gonna behave, right? If that's the way you're gonna act about it, then we'll just take that away. How do you like that? And yet, Jesus, who is king, who will be tried and mocked by the very ones that he came to save, how will he respond as they do what they do to him with no regard for his humanity, much less his divinity? And so, here we see Jesus preparing. He's prepared in Gethsemane, and he's facing one of what I would consider, for for me personally, I, I could not... I couldn't do this. I couldn't bear this. I don't like being mocked. You need to know that. And, uh, and I, don't, I, don't like, I don't like being hit when I don't know where it's coming from. I don't like being hit when I know where it's coming from. And so what he endures on my behalf so that I don't have to live only at that being my only reality, what an amazing thing. And I hope that we would be moved by what it is that he has done for us And this, to me, is one of the hardest passages, not because it's difficult theologically, but just because it's difficult to even consider all that he endured. And if it doesn't move us, if there's not some sort of gravity to this passage, if there's not sort of some solemnity to this, I don't know where we will find it. And so as we turn to this, let's remember, Peter's story has wrapped up as uh, as we saw last week. In fact, uh, Matthew really doesn't mention him again individually. Um, But remember, he was broken in great sorrow as the rooster crowed. But what we do know is that he will see Christ again in Galilee because Christ promised to meet him there. Now it picks up Christ, as you remember, he's been being tried all night long. How many of you are really sharp after you've stayed up all night long? How many of you are sharp just having stayed up till 11 last night? Let's just show up hands, right, right? Uh, how many of us are, I mean, and not just, not just stayed up, but were, you were on trial. You were being attacked. You were being uh, just, just, just spat upon and slapped. You, you were being just mistreated all night long. And so that is uh, the context for where we step in when the morning has come. So if you would hear the reading of God's word. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. This ain't even the hard part and I'm tearing up. This is going to get a lot harder. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he being Judas departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them in the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took... 30 pieces of silver, the price of him uh, on the price uh, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So here we have Jesus has been up all night long, and the chief priests finally come to the conclusion that he, a blasphemer, needs to be put to death, but they can't do it because they don't have the power, as it were, to do it directly. What we're going to discover is they actually do have the power to move uh, Pilate to have him scourged and crucified because Pilate fears them more than he fears anyone else, as it turns out. So what they've got to do is turn him over to Pilate and for him to basically be tried for treason. Pilate doesn't care about blasphemy because he doesn't care about any of these religions because essentially Rome is its own God in a sense. The, the, The politics of Rome are the God. And so... So they deliver him over. Notice they bind him. 
treating him as if he were nothing more than just a common criminal. It was all to make him feel the weight of their displeasure. And yet he was going to die so that they would never taste if they would repent of the very displeasure of God. So in turning him over, the scene shifts to Judas, who realizes that he actually has violated the law in Deuteronomy. As it says, you're not supposed to shed innocent blood. And so he, in seeking atonement, doesn't go to Jesus. Now you may be thinking, well, how easy would, have, would it have been for Jesus to go to Jesus, I mean, Judas to go to Jesus since he was bound? Well, he had access. He really did. They would have allowed him to come. But instead, he goes to uh, what in his Jewish mind would have been the place to actually seek atonement. Interesting, he goes to the chief priests whose job it is, by virtue of their office, to grant or offer atonement on behalf of the people who seek it. Notice what they do. This corrupt priesthood says, what is that to us? See to it yourself. What kind of a pastoral advice is that from the chief priest? What a devastating thing to utter given what it was they were supposed to be about. And fascinatingly, they recognize that the money is stained with blood, that it's not money that can be used in the treasury, which is fascinating to me that they would think that that mattered. They turn one out who is seeking For them to do what it was they had been set apart to do. Offer atonement on behalf of the people. And they recognized that there was an issue. But Judas was nothing to them. So here Judas has sold himself into slavery to a group of people who care nothing for him. Now that is a cautionary tale for us all. Because how many of us have submitted ourselves, have in essence sold ourselves over to those who don't really care anything for us. Who in essence are not going to do what it is that they were called to do. This is the danger of the cult of personality. And just so you know, I'm actually talking about the church. I'm talking about pastors and leaders, and this is sobering for us all. Who when you come seeking, when you come seeking comfort in Christ, we say, I'm too busy for that. See to it yourself. Not that you need us as mediator. Don't hear me wrongly here. But the Lord has given Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, pastors and teachers and all the offices to serve as ministers of his grace. To apply the gospel to the people. If we are too busy, too concerned With our gaze turned elsewhere, then what good are we to you? And you should not tolerate such. I know I just opened up a whole can of potential worms, but good. May it be, Lord, that if if, if there's genuine sin on the part of the leadership of this church, if we are failing in some way, knowingly or unknowingly, wittingly or unwittingly, that we would be confronted in the power of the Holy Spirit and we would have room to repent and receive grace and mercy in this time of potential trouble. That we would be able to grow. Because again, we're going to fail you. We are, because we too are human. But it's not something that we want to have as part of the ethos of who we are. You understand? And so, here, the very priests who should have offered and and welcomed Judas and given him opportunity to be set right with God, turn him out. And notice Judas's response. He doesn't then go and seek Jesus. What does he do? He says, in, in essence, in his mind, the only death that can make this right is mine. And he hangs himself. And you may say, well, Karen, how are you getting that from the text? Well, I, I don't. It is, it is a presumption, but that's a pretty heavy thing for him to decide because essentially he is making it a zero sum. There is nothing that can happen after. When he hangs himself, he's essentially cast his lot in full. Now, did I just say that if you commit suicide, you go right to hell? No, that is not what I said. 
I think Judas's character in some other texts seem to indicate that he was probably not redeemed. But here's the deal. If I get to heaven and Judas meets me first and says, ha, 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 I'm here too, I'm going to go, great. I'm sorry I was wrong. I'm okay if I'm wrong. But it looks like with him being a thief from the poor and God saying it'd been better if he'd never been born, it looks like given all that's indicated to me, that he passes not into eternity to dwell with God. But I'm okay if he does. And so instead he takes matters into his own hands and he seeks atonement by his own death in some measure or he seeks to, to, to make it right instead of being able to go on in the tension of the mistake that he's made. And again, the, the priest confessed, this is blood money. We can't use it in the treasury, but I'll tell you what we can do. We can buy a field for which those who are outside the kingdom can be buried. Now, this is a difficult aspect of the text, and I'm not going to get too tangled up in the scholastic concerns about it, but it seems to be a conglomeration of things, one part being from Zechariah chapter 11, where it talks about the shepherd essentially being sold for 30 pieces of silver, and he's combining that with a concept from Jeremiah 19 and 32, where it talks about purchasing a field for those to be buried who are outside the kingdom. Now, this happens quite a lot in Scripture because they're so versed in Scripture, they don't get tangled up, and they're not looking to prove something wrong all the time. And so there, there's an assumption that you'd be somewhat familiar. And Jeremiah, kind of being the prototypical prophet, he gets listed instead of Zechariah. And so it's not that it has to be an exact quote. It's the spirit of it, in a sense, that is most important to us, that what they were doing, what's being said here is that what they were doing was well within the sovereignty of God. They were not ultimately deciding to do whatever they wanted to. So what does that tell us? That it was God who decided that Christ would be crucified on our behalf. That it was God who sent his son for that purpose. That it was God who said he would rise from the dead. That it was God who said he would redeem his people. And that all these agents doing what they think they're doing, they think they're riffing and doing their own thing, know in fact they're not. And so what we have is the fulfillment of prophecy. And that even as Judas seeks atonement elsewhere in all the wrong places, and even as the chief priests failed to do what it was they were called to do, redemption is still coming. Amen? And so... Listen to what Frederick Dale Bruner says of this passage, and I think it's sobering. He connects it into Peter's story. He says, Matthew seems to contrast Peter's broken heart with Judas's despairing one. The difference between a broken heart and a despairing one may be that the broken heart longs for divine forgiveness, while a despairing one may think only of what it can or more often cannot do. Both hearts hit bottom, but one realizes in powerlessness and balls. The other tries every desperate remedy available to human beings. See, the cautionary tale for us is that so often we seek to make things right in our own power. So often our first move is, is to start trying to scramble to minimize the aftermath or minimize the impact or the, the, the spin machine goes into control, right? It starts going, so we're trying to figure out what, what, what am I going to do instead of recognizing what already has been done and recognizing that what you are to do is surrender to Christ who has died for you, and surrender to the very word of God. You may be wondering, why did we read Exodus 15 this morning and diseases from Egypt? Well, remember when that occurs. What happens just prior to that text? Where'd they just come from? Yeah, they just come through the Red Sea and sang that great, the first great hymn, by the way, the Song of Moses. Uh, they sing that song, and no, no, they don't hardly get into the wilderness probably 10, 15 feet, and they can't stand any of the accommodations. The water is bitter. And what are we going to do? We had it better in Egypt. And Moses does something very supernatural. He just grabs this log and throws it in the water, and 
The water's made sweet. Now why, after all God had done, think about this for a second now, they've just witnessed all of the gods of Egypt be taken down plague by plague. They've just seen an entire army drown in the Red Sea, okay? And they got a little bit of nasty water they got to deal with, and they don't turn to the Lord their God who they know is good. Immediately they begin to curse. Does this sound familiar to any of you all? That after all God has done for each and every single one of us, we are quicker to depart from him, we are quicker to curse him, we are quicker to question his goodness than ever to turn to it in our time of need. Woe be unto us that that is what we do, and yet, here's the good news, Christ died knowing that that is what you are. But he didn't leave you as that is only what you can be. We can grow in our gratitude, can we not? We can grow in our understanding of the very goodness of the Lord our God. We can grow in our appreciation of the gospel of Christ and his work and all that he has done for us, can we not? But we can't, by the way, by osmosis. We can't if we don't take the means of grace and use them, if we don't cultivate the very life that reflects these things. Think about it like this. If it is going to take, which actually this, what I'm about to say is, is philosophically wrong. Let me just get this out of the way. If it's going to take an eternity, because eternity is not an actual length, but if it's going to take an eternity to appreciate the goodness of our God, then why do we think we have mined it so quickly after hearing just a few sermons, reading a few books, and thinking about it a couple of times? It is something that must be continually multi, uh, cultivated. Uh, it's something that we need to actually see new every single morning. It's something that we celebrate every given week as we gather together as God's people to come to it with fresh eyes and fresh ears. And yet, some of us are wondering, I've heard all this before. You've already checked out because you're like, yeah, Easter sermons. And we're unmoved by yet another display, by yet another telling of the story. And so my prayer is that we would be a people who are constantly in awe of the goodness of God. Jordan and I had a great opportunity uh, on, on the balcony at the men's retreat um, to talk about just how good God has been to him. And, I, and the statement I made to him was, man, I hope that you frequently pause and in great awe give thanks to the Lord your God because not only does he love you, he seems to like you. After that slab of ribs, I'm not sure what he thinks about either one of us, but, but I, you know what I'm saying? I mean, Jordan, I mean, he's been good. To, and we could go through, we could take all day, actually, celebrating how God has been good to each and every single one of you, and yet we move on so quickly to, yeah, but what has he done for me today? What is it he's doing today? I mean, you know, it's good, but it's not great. Think how petulant we are. And are you more like Judas in that you're seeking atonement in all the things that you're doing? Or you're seeking destruction as if your destruction could provide atonement? So when you mess up or fail, we ask this question often. You may get tired of it, but I hope you don't because we need to think about it often. But when you mess up or fail, where do you turn first to seek reconciliation? The way we say it here, which way do you run? If you are a Christian, you should run to the throne of grace. Humbly, by the way, but boldly in the grace of Christ and what he's done to receive what you need, both mercy and grace in a time of trouble, right? But if we fail to understand that and we run from the Lord our God, out from under the hedge of protection, then we are setting ourselves up for some measure of sorrow and destruction and the discipline of the Lord. So you need to think about that and be honest about which way do you go. In fact, it plays out among the people of God as well, and I don't want us to miss this. One of the aspects of Matthew 18, when it's so rich about Matthew 18 and, and, and just Jesus' statement that we are to be uh, constantly seeking forgiveness, right? Forgive us, Lord, as we have forgiven others, as it says in the Lord's Prayer. It should also play out in the community of the people of God that we should be very quick when we have transgressed one another 
to come to each other recognizing what spirit is at work in each of us. And if you're afraid about how someone's going to respond, well, you're failing to discover what you really have. See, I'm big on let's go ahead and figure it out, right? So if I come to you and you're unforgiving, I don't want to be around you, nor you me. If you're going to turn, turn me away with a harsh answer and not offer me the means of grace, I want to know that. I don't want to operate under the illusion and not know. I want to know who's in, who's out, who, who what, what's the crew? Who am I riding with? Who's my ride or die? Right? And you do too, which is why we don't just up and get vulnerable with anybody and everybody. But we better, it would be better to discover it quickly than wait and wait and wait and use the means of grace to keep short accounts among one another and fight for the beauty of the local church for which Christ died. We take the local church way, way, way too not seriously in this regard. And we don't understand that you're actually mocking the king of said church when you treat her as poorly as you do. And you may say, yeah, but it's shooting fish in a barrel, my friend. Have you seen what goes on in the local church? Yeah, I have. And it's grievous at times, but she is still the bride. We don't have the liberty to treat her such, and much better that we would be architects instead of wicked deconstructionists, of which I am very gifted. Which is why I couldn't play paintball. (laughs) Bad things would have happened. And so, based on which way you run, what does that reveal about where your faith and hope are actually found? Because if you run from the throne of grace, you are making a very clear statement that you can handle it. And that somehow you are special enough, either in your wickedness, you're so wicked that, Christ, that you can eclipse the cross, or you are so strong that you don't need such a pitiful display. And that's a hard thing for us to come to terms with, but you have the opportunity to be redeemed from even those things. Christ died for that too. Remember, Saul becomes Paul. Let's turn back to the text and look at the situation with Pilate where Jesus is declared the king of the Jews. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered Pilate, they said, uh, gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ. They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, 
His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now what we see here is that Pilate is much more concerned with what the people think and his political circumstance. So for him, politics is his God. And so he recognizes that Jesus is not actually guilty of anything, which is fascinating because that means that Pilate really doesn't care about the law either, does he? And so he's more concerned with what they think. And so as he questions Jesus, he's amazed that Jesus makes no effort to be released. You do understand that if Jesus had really kind of put up a fight and maybe showed that there could have been a counter-insurrection, that maybe the scales would tip. That's not what he does. He remains silent except for when Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, it's your confession. And notice that the rest of the time that Pilate refers to Jesus, he uses the term, the Christ. Now, if his concern was to maybe sway the Jews to take Barabbas instead of Jesus, why would he use that term? Because that's really just to kind of almost needle them unless he didn't know exactly what he was doing. And I think that maybe he didn't know and that in essence he was just continuing to confess in the sovereignty of God that Jesus is the Christ. And so instead they choose Barabbas, whose name means, interestingly, son of Abba or son of the father. And so they're choosing between two sons of the father, Barabbas being one, uh, a, a terroristic insurrectionist that probably had been involved in some sort of plot where someone lost their lives. And so in order to placate the people, Pilate had this thing that he would do where he'd release somebody, some prisoner, and, and think about that for a second, just release one person on a yearly basis. It's good politics. It's good, good press. And so they choose Barabbas. And then, interestingly, he asks them, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Because he himself really didn't know what to do with this innocent man. In fact, his wife had tried to sway him. She said, don't do anything with this righteous man. I have suffered in dreams because of him. He didn't want to hear what his wife has to say and all that supernatural nonsense. What he sees is what is only before him. And that is what sways him. There's a potential riot forming. Can't have that. Might as well kill an innocent man. Better that one man die for many, yes? So Pilate delivers him up to be crucified. Now it's interesting that Pilate, who knew him to be innocent, has him scourged. Now I'm sure that was, I mean, that was kind of Roman practice in a sense, but was it necessary? What was he doing there? We don't really know for sure, except that, that it was brutal. And notice Matthew doesn't give a lot of details. It's just that one where he was scourged. Now, he's going to give us a little more in the next section, but he doesn't go into all the gruesomeness of what it really would have in, in, entailed. And so here, Pilate is much more concerned with what people think about him. And like it says in this, in this text, I love the way it puts it. It says, he saw that he was gaining nothing. What a beautiful sentence to show the essence of Pilate's heart that he was looking at the circumstance and saying, I don't care what's right and wrong. I'm not getting anything out of this, so I'm not fixing to do what's right. Now, let me just pause there for a second and let that sink into what you just heard. Think about that statement. I'm not going to do what's right here because I'm not going to get anything out of it. What do I gain by doing the right thing? Think of this. We have sayings that help us in this regard, right? Know what deed goes unpunished. No good deed goes unpunished. We like, in fact, we say stuff like that. What a bunch of nonsense that we bought into. I don't know where it comes from necessarily, but it's it, the pit of hell probably. But, but that's crazy for us to go around with an ideology. No good deed goes unpunished. My daughter, whom I love dearly and who I've referred to as a theologian on many occasions when she was young, and I've told this story before, she'd get in trouble for something, which I know is hard to believe. She's kin to me. And, uh, and so we'd put her on restriction, and she'd clean her room and maybe the bathroom, go the extra mile, and she'd come out and she'd go, and she'd call us in there and take us on a brief tour as docent of cleanliness and all things right. And then she'd go, okay, 
And I'm like, no, that's great. That's what you're supposed to do, by the way. Uh, so thanks for doing that. And she said, but wait, am I still on restriction? Did you, did you do what you, did you do something to get on restriction? Yeah. Okay, then yeah. And she would get, she would just get livid instantaneously. See, that's not ever do anything good because it doesn't ever get me anywhere. Now, what a beautiful confession. I'm serious because it is in every single one of us. And, and she's closer to the truth by saying it out loud. She's closer to the truth by admitting that it is in fact a reality that lurks deep within her own heart. We try to, try to gussy it up, right? We try to spin it so that that's not really, no, that's not really what I'm saying. That's not really how I live. I'm different than that. No, 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 no. No, you are just like Pilate. You survey the circumstance and you say, situational ethics, can I get anything out of this? And if so, here's what I'm going to do. I don't care what's right and wrong. You need to think about that. Uh, we all do. Myself included, I, I, I am not above this, and it is piercing to me in particular. Um, because there's all kind of ways you can spin and explain stuff to one's advantage, to make life easier and harder on someone else. And so Pilate is much more concerned. He is enslaved in a way uh, that Jesus dies to break. So hear what Dan Doriani says about this. He says, false gods and false desires always enslave. Pilate turned to politics for meaning, for salvation. He turned to his power to save his power. Yet he found that the more he clung to power, the less he could use it. He became a prisoner in his own palace, forced to order the death of Jesus because political power said so. His desires did not match his needs. They enslaved them and made him a coward. The same holds for us. So let us examine ourselves. So what impact does what other people think have on how you live your life? Now, what I just said, every single person in this room, from you third graders on up, you need to process this question somehow, some way. Because we are all being led around by what others think of us. We just are at some level. And so if you're going to be led by what others think of you, you might want to be a little more selective about who that is and what they really intend for you long-term. And don't buy into the arrogant hype that somehow that you can supersede it because I've lived long enough to know you can't. I caved yesterday. I could have ordered five wings instead of 10. Wasn't going out like that. As a man, I can't order, I can't order five wings. Got a 10 minimum, right? And I've suffered for it. But that's peccadillo compared to what we really are capable of. And so... So we're all being influenced by what others think of us. And then let me ask you this, what impact does what God has established as true have on how you live your life? See, that's really where we ought to put the effort and the time and the energy. How is what God has said is true and declared over you in his promises through the person and work of Christ fulfilled, by the way, in him, how does that instead shape how you live your life? It's interesting, uh, in one of the Jewish texts, it has this interesting statement about that instead of being judged for what we did wrong, we might actually be judged for the, all of the good things that we ignored. All of the good gifts that we just pushed aside. And that doesn't, that's not far off of the whole issue of being lukewarm and being spewed out. I don't think it's all that. I think it's both and. I think it's just the rejection of Christ that we will be judged for ultimately. But think a bit about how all the good things that God offers, we ignore. And all of the terrible things that the world has to offer, we are enamored with. Turn back to the text and let's 
see the conclusion as the soldiers serve as instruments of the wrong king. <clears throat> then the soldiers of the governor with Jesus uh, took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away. To crucify him. Now, what's interesting about this is why did they need to do this? What, what was it that they, Jesus had done to upset the Roman garrison? And notice what they do they gather the whole battalion. So they, they gather a crowd. Essentially, you've got to imagine they're going, hey, hey, you need to come see this. What we're about to do is going to be amazing. This guy thinks he's king, and we're going to show him. We're going to make sure that he understands that no, no, he is not king. There is no king but Caesar. And we are his arm, his sword in his fist. And so they strip him in front of this entire battalion, which is not a small group of people, by the way. And they put a robe on him, which that's not all that bad. But then they took a crown of thorns and they twisted it and they lightly placed it on his head, I'm sure. No. No, they crammed it down so he would know, no, this, this is your crown, king. Put a reed in his hand. He said nothing, silent as a lamb before the shears. Can you imagine? How many of you are able to stay silent when somebody says something goofy on Facebook? Or in person? Much less if they are attacking you and mocking, not just attacking, mocking. So they force this crown upon his head and they kneel and they say, Hail the king of the Jews. And they conclude by spitting on him again. Matthew did a great job. I don't know if you've ever been spit on. It's not fun. It's not good. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's particularly demeaning, isn't it? In any culture, try it with any culture. Spit on somebody to say, hey, I'm doing an experiment. I just want to see how people from Malaysia respond to being spat upon. I hope you understand. It's for science. Uh, it's, it's pretty universal. This is, this is disgusting and not good. And then they snatch the scepter from his hand that Genesis 49 said would be there. And they strike him on the head. Some king you are. And what's interesting is it says, and when they had mocked him, meaning it was when they had decided they were done with this. They didn't even let him go to the cross in his mock kingly garb. They stripped him of that as well and reduced him back to what it was that they thought him to be. Nothing. They led him away to be crucified. So they're serving the wrong king. Now you may say, I don't, I don't, that's not me. I don't, I don't do that. Uh, not so fast, actually. Um, Oftentimes with our words and our deeds, we are very mocking of this king. We show that we serve a, a king called mammon sometimes, which is money. Or we serve a king called power. Or we serve a king called selfishness. Or we serve a king called uh, prestige. We want to be known. And we forsake and mock Jesus. How many times have you been in a situation where you sounded a lot like Peter when the servant girl confronts him and says, oh, no, you, you, you're, you're definitely a Galilean. I, 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 I hear it in you. And he curses and says, no, no, I am not. Peter was mocking Christ even in that moment. What's good news is Peter's forgiven of his mocking. Even some of these soldiers, it seems, come around and are redeemed. But do understand that you are just as guilty. 
you often push down the crown of thorns upon his head and say, thank you for suffering for me. But I'll, I'll seek pleasure instead. We snatch the reed from his hand, oftentimes saying, no, 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 you're not the king. This isn't your scepter, it's mine or someone else's who I have decided as king and you have decided nothing. So be careful that you don't read these stories and see these things as something somehow dis, disenfranchised from you or distant from you. No, you, you have played, I have played, we have played every single part. And it's not that this is myth. This happened in time and history. And fortunately for us, we don't re-crucify Christ, now do we? Hebrews tells us you can't crucify Christ again. And amen. He suffered once for all. So the good news for us is even in our mocking, even in our care about what the world or someone else thinks about us rather than what God has said is true, and even in our just sorrow that is not godly because we got caught in attempts to find atonement somewhere other than Christ, Christ remains. And redemption remains while you have breath in your lungs. What a gift. He woke you up this morning. Don't ever let that get old. Listen to what Matthew Henry says of this passage. He says, we could not stand before God because of our sins, nor lift up our face in his presence if Christ had not been thus made sin for us. He was arraigned that we might be discharged. He stood undaunted, unmoved by all their rage. Think of Psalm 2, which we looked at a few months back. While the nations rage. Can you imagine? He doesn't say anything while these people treat him with great indignity. Not just his divinity. His humanity was assaulted. He stood undaunted, unmoved by all their rage. He thus stood in this judgment that we might stand in God's. To be able to stand in God's judgment, that's a reference to, really to Romans 5 where it says we stand in the grace before God that Christ has provided. There is now therefore no condemnation. And amen for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But what do your words and deeds reveal about who or what rules over your life? If I could see your bank account, which I can't, and we don't do W-2s here. If I could see your time, your calendar, if I could see you on Interstate 75, Friday at 4.30, if you could see me, it wouldn't be pretty. But think of is that okay? Is it okay that we have other gods before him? No. The very first commandment says no. It's not okay. Hadn't been okay since then, ever. Won't be okay. But we do have room to repent, right? Are you expected to be perfect in this life? No. Remember what Francis Schaeffer said. That's what just kills us. Is with this, we think we can be perfect, so we do nothing. Because we know we can't be perfect. So what do your words and deeds reveal about who and what rules your life? And do your words and deeds honor Christ as Savior and King? So what do we learn from Matthew 27? Well, it teaches us some bad news. That we're perfectly capable to seek atonement and reconciliation in anything or anyone other than Christ. That we seek approval from other fickle people instead of founding ourselves on the truth of what God has declared. And that we serve temporary kings and kingdoms by mocking the kingship of Christ with our words and deeds. But there's good news. The good news is because of all that is why he had to come and die for us. Because of all that, he rose from the grave so that we would not be bound by death and sin. And it's because of all those predilections on our part that he grants us the Holy Spirit to continue after he has ascended and is making intercession for us. 
Because of all that, he reigns as king and he's coming again. So this morning, my hope is that we would consider some of those things about ourselves, that we would take an honest look. But let me give you some advice. Do that on Monday. Maybe Tuesday. Even push it to Wednesday. I don't care. But take today and celebrate the good news. This is the Lord's Day. This is the day on which you get to celebrate your freedom in Christ. You get to feast instead of fast. You get to walk in newness of life. So take time with your family, with your friends at some point today and talk about how God has been good. That despite all of our fallen, broken predilections, Christ died for us. Take today and cling to the crucified. Amen? Take today and hear the words declared over you yet again. That though it is our hands who shed his blood, he bled for us. To cover us so that we would not have to walk in shame and guilt. Death is swallowed up in life. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for me to say thank you for what Christ had to endure because it's more than I can bear. I'm sorry. But Lord, I thank you that he did in fact endure and that he did exactly what you promised he would do in Isaiah 53 and many other places. I give you thanks that he is the shepherd, though struck, who rose from the grave to be the true good shepherd who intercedes for his people and is coming again to call us to the new heavens and the new earth where all things will be made new. Lord, I thank you that you provide the Holy Spirit to remind us continually, convicting us of our sin and reminding us of our redemption. I thank you that you give us your word and you kept your word. Thank you that you give us your people, the church, broken and sinful though she may be, frail though she seems at so many times, and yet Christ reigns as her head. May we look upon that sacred head now wounded, And recognize that those wounds were for us, not against us. In Christ's name, amen.